Hello, and welcome to this Wellington College Out of the Archives podcast. I'm Caroline Jones, the College Archivist, and today I'm going to be looking at the early years of rugby at Wellington. Now, rugby is perhaps Wellington's best-known sport, and it was certainly one of the first sports to be played here. In 1859, the year that the college opened, the students and staff were already clearing the heather and gorse to create a pitch, and by the next year they were playing regularly and keeping written records. But let's imagine that you could travel back to the 1860s, the college's first decade, and see rugby as it was played then. You would find the rugby pitch more or less where it is now, with, I think, goals looking something similar to modern ones. But you would also be in for some surprises. First of all, it would be quite normal to find 60 or more players on the field at once, sometimes with considerably more on one team than the other. Secondly, there would be very little passing or running with the ball. Kicking was the main method of moving it around, but actually most of the game would be taken up with interminable scrums, in which the crowd of players would viciously kick at one another's shins in their attempts to get the ball, a practice known as hacking. When a player finally did get the ball and ran with it, the opposing team would employ all possible methods, including tripping and more hacking, to make him drop it. Points could only be scored by kicking the ball through the goalposts. A try didn't score anything. It only earned you the opportunity to try for a kick at goal. Because the game was so static, it was quite common for no goals to be scored at all. One or two would be the maximum. And if by now you felt a bit confused and asked one of the spectators what game you were watching, the answer would be football, of course. So what was going on? Well, the sport we now know as rugby was then rugby football, and it was just one of many variations of a game played by schools and other clubs through the country. There was no fixed set of rules. All the clubs had different ways of playing. A game known as football had been played in England and Scotland from at least medieval times onwards. It was played by ordinary working people. You might be familiar with the stories of whole villagers turning out to play games of a hundred aside. And it was also popular with university students. It was disorganised, quite dangerous, and you can tell its enduring popularity by the number of laws which were enacted at various times and places to try to ban it. However, by the beginning of the 19th century, football was becoming more and more popular at public schools. The authorities had started to see it as a useful outlet for teenage boys' physical energy, and even as a means for promoting positive moral qualities such as courage. But every school had its own rules, often very obscure and complex and sometimes referring to specific parts of their own school grounds. Gradually these rules were written down. The story of William Webb Ellis inventing rugby by picking up the ball and running with it at rugby school in 1823 is almost certainly a myth and wasn't told until 50 years after it's supposed to have happened. But rugby was one of the first schools to produce a written set of rules for the game in 1845. The use of coloured jerseys to differentiate the teams and the privilege of a special cap for team members both originated at English schools during the 1840s and 50s. The spread of railways from the 1840s onwards meant that schools and other clubs could travel to play one another in sporting fixtures. That worked for cricket where the rules were fairly standardised. But because everyone's rules for football were different, that was much more complicated. The splitting of games into two halves probably originates from the practice of playing one club's rules for the first half and the other's rules for the second half. 
What's more, the games were so brutal that many people felt that encouraging different schools to play one another at all was a mistake. So that was the situation when Wellington opened in 1859. The first master, Edward White Benson, although not at all a sportsman himself, saw the value of physical exercise and he made football compulsory at least once a week. He'd previously been a teacher at rugby, so rugby football was the kind adopted by Wellington. The very first entry in the team's written record book in October 1860 states that in case of any dispute arising during a match, the rules are the same as those used at rugby. A small copy of them is published and may be seen at the boys' library. Wellington also copied rugby's word big side, which meant both the pitch and the games played there. The games at Wellington were organised by the head of school and a group of senior boys. Later, this evolved into the Upper Ten. That's the origin of that tradition. This group decided that those who were voted the best players should be designated caps and have the privilege of wearing a white star on their school cap. The following year, each house adopted its own cap, velvet caps of different colours with the house badge on the front. And the list of the colours and badges is written down in our record book. That's probably the origin of the house colours and badges which we still have today. All the badges have stayed the same right to this day, although nearly all the colours have changed from that first list. At that time there were fewer than 200 boys in the school altogether, and as I've said, all of them were expected to play at the same time. Although, as the numbers grew over the decade, it was recognised that it wasn't wise for small boys of 12 or so to play in the same game as 18-year-olds, so in practice it was the older ones who played. In the late 1860s, another pitch was created, meaning that there could be a little side as well as a big side, and then from 1870, middle side as well. Written records of individual games survive in the archives from 1861 onwards. They start with a game of prefects versus the school, which the prefects won easily, despite presumably being in a minority. The games after that represent various ways to try to divide the school into two teams, for example, front versus back quad, east versus west block, Scotch and Irish versus English, or the two sides of chapel. It was also usual for teachers and any former students who turned up to join the teams. As I've said, the two sides were often not equal. For example, in 1865, there's a record of a choir versus school match, described as one of the best matches of the season, although there were nearly three times as many men on one side as the other. As I said, the method of play meant that very often no goals were scored, in which case the game would be continued on a second day, and sometimes even further days. Another peculiarity of the Wellington ground was that it was on a noticeable hill, so descriptions of matches usually start by telling you which side won the toss and whether they elected to play uphill or downhill first. From 1863, inter-house matches were played regularly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The houses were ranked in a league and each house played the one above it. If they won, they moved up a place. If they lost, they stayed where they were. The teams for these matches were 25 a side, which was rather harsh on the newest houses, Combermere and Harding, as each of these only contained 21 boys in total. As a result, they were always at the bottom of the league, but the competition between the two of them was fierce. In 1861, the school played what might be called their first external match, when 14 students from Oxford, mostly old rugbyans, came down and formed a team with four teachers to play against the 25 school caps. 
That became a regular feature, and after a few years the school played other adult clubs too, but they don't seem to have regularly played other schools until the 20th century. Meanwhile, things were moving on in the outside world. Schools were not the only ones playing football. Many local areas formed their own clubs. And in 1863, the Football Association was formed, with the intention of framing a regular set of rules by which these clubs could play one another. As they were drafting the rules, there was a noticeable divide between those clubs which permitted carrying the ball in the hands and those which didn't. The latter group was stronger in the FA, and so the FA rules published at the end of 1863 did not allow picking up the ball. That marks the beginning of association football as distinct from rugby football. At around the same time, the construction of the ball itself began to change. For centuries, it had been made of an inflated pig's bladder encased in leather, which gave it a slightly ovoid shape. Now it became possible to make the interior out of rubber instead, which meant the balls could be more standard in shape. Gradually, the balls used by FA clubs became rounder, which was better for kicking, while rugby balls became a more pronounced oval, which was better for carrying. The schools didn't take much of an interest in the FA. Only Charterhouse went to the founding meeting. And so most schools, and many adult clubs, carried on playing variations on the rugby form of the game. In January 1871, representatives of 21 clubs met at the Pall Mall restaurant to try to regularise the rules for that game. Wellington was, I believe, one of only two schools to send a representative, the captain of football, A.J. English. And so we can claim to be one of the founder members of the Rugby Football Union. They published a set of rules in the June of that year. Those first rules didn't stipulate the number of players on a team, but during the 1870s the usual number gradually diminished from 25 to 20 and then finally to 15. The RFU also banned hacking, that is, kicking opponents in the shins, and tripping them up in general. Some of these innovations were slow to catch on at Wellington, but eventually they did, and the style of play gradually changed too. A team member at that time wrote that the games master, Mr Davenport, suggested we should back each other up more and always pass the ball when collared. We quickly tumbled to the enormous advantage gained thereby and began to do it. In those days, no London club ever thought of it. Nobody did. Everyone played a selfish game for himself and there was little cohesion. Even in these early years, Wellington soon gained a reputation for rugby, as is perhaps shown by the fact that they were mostly playing against adult teams. As well as the organised games at college, there was what was called a punt-about every evening before tea, when anyone who wanted could take a ball and practice passing it and also kicking drop goals. One of the boys in later life wrote, It was capital fun, good exercise, and most undoubtedly produced many wonderful drops. Many youngsters of 13 or 14 learnt to drop right or left foot from any angle and at full speed too and I have always thought the Wellington boys were quite remarkable for their wonderfully accurate drop-kicking. Perhaps that's why, during the 1870s, ten old Wellingtonians were capped for England and one for Scotland. Remember, at that time, kicking a goal was the only way to score points. Eventually, in the late 1880s, points for tries were introduced, and the game gradually became more like what we know as rugby. However, it was still called football in all the match reports printed in the Wellingtonian, right up until the Second World War, when it became rugby football or rugger. There's much more to be said about the story of rugby at Wellington in the 20th century, and a lot more to dig out of the archives, but that we'll have to wait for another time. 
I hope you've enjoyed learning something about the beginnings of the sport and the way it was first played at Wellington.